Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about uh, Samuel Alinsky's uh, Rules for Radicals. Again, I know uh, we did just do a talk about this, but uh, I'm going to do another talk about this, about his uh, various rules that he actually has. Just need to make sure everything's uh, good and kicking. So what we have here is a list of his rules. We got uh, 10 or 13 rules about how to effectively run an organization or run uh, some sort of uh, advocacy campaign, run some sort of, he was an agitator. He was a professional socialist agitator is what his expertise is. And if you Google these things on the internet, you'll typically find these type of socialist, quote unquote, progressive sites pushing these rules and how to effectively use them. So we'll talk about that and uh, how how we could actually apply these rules towards open theism, probably increased open theistic uh, clout or acceptance or create social change within the theological community. So number one, power is not only what you have, but what the enemy thinks you have. Now the Calvinists, they typically use this to good effect. So what are, what are some common Calvinist claims? They'll claim things like, oh, all the scholarship is on our side, that, uh, you know, all, uh, we, we're the biblical scholars here. We understand the Bible. If you really understood and, and loved the Bible, you'd be a Calvinist. And they have this, almost this uh, talking point monopoly on this, this one little feature. And so w people tend to believe them because they say it and they say it often. They say it with such confidence that uh, it, it's, it's this... But it's this, it's this fake talking point that they have, that they're the biblical scholarship. So all you have to do is know a little bit about biblical scholarship and how it works and how it functions and how academia works and how academia functions to see through these hollow claims. For example, pretty much all the ancient Near East scholarship disagrees with Calvinism. You're not going to find a John Day or Mark Smith or... or uh, uh, like uh, A.T. Robinson, some, someone like that, they're, they're not going to be Calvinists. They're not going to think that the Old Testament writers were Calvinists. That's just not part of part of how they viewed the world. So Roddy says, uh, bueno, he said, which is good in Spanish. Uh, hey, Roddy. So uh, like Christine Hayes, a Yale scholar of uh, biblical studies, has a Yale course on the Old Testament, and she laughs at the idea that God is immutable within within the text of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. It, it's a laughable claim, yeah. So biblical scholarship is pretty united against this idea of Calvinism being within at least the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, uh, but even into the New Testament, it's very questionable. These, these are very late claims, these ideas of immutability, simplicity, uh, being a singularity outside of space, time, everything like that. It's, it's just... It's just not part of the biblical scholarship. And what Calvinists use for biblical scholarship is anyone who they claim as a scholar who agrees with them. Anyone who doesn't agree with them, they'll claim isn't a biblical scholar or they'll find ways to uh, downplay them. Oh, that person's secular. Well, guess what? Someone who's secular 
doesn't have a dog in a fight, so I'm going to trust their opinions over some sort of pundit. They'll, they'll claim people like James White is biblical scholarship. All the scholars agree. See, we have James White. No, that's a pundit. That's a rhetorician. That's a, that's a demigod. That's, it's not, that's not biblical scholarship. That's not what's going on there. So power is not only what you have, but what your enemy thinks you have. The Calvinists use that to try to claim that biblical scholarship is on their side. All you have to do is know a little bit about the subject to rebuff their arguments. But not everyone knows very much about the subject, and so those claims are accepted on face value. So keep that in mind. Don't let people bluff you uh, into believing their point. Two, never go outside the expertise of your people. So the idea behind this rule for radical is that uh, you, if your people have certain skills and, and uh, uh, ideology, you're not going to make... Go, go do something that they're not familiar with, that they're uncomfortable doing, because then they're going to get involved in this and they're not going to know how to act and respond. They won't know how to actually uh, facilitate the change that you're looking for. So open theism actually excels fairly well at here, because what is the, what is the skill set that one needs to be an open theist is just basic, competent reading comprehension skills, just a, a, a functioning knowledge about how the English language works and functions. And so open theists, all, all you need is people who can read. They can read the Bible. They could open the Bible and look through passages and say, oh, yeah, here, here's God repenting. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't know all the future and all detail. He hasn't predestined everything. That's just not part of the biblical story. And all they have to do is be able to read that. So open theism plays well to this very common competency that people have is reading comprehension. Uh, the outside the expertise of open theism is typically nuanced semantics. Uh, th this these philosophical debates, like, oh, uh, what's what's the most recent one? Maybe something like someone claiming, oh, modalism. So you you got these different modes, and they're assigned to these different objects, and so there's there's uh, things that are necessary and things that are contingent, and and yeah. yeah no, no one has competency in that. that that's not the argument that normal open theists are going to want to be bringing up and fighting against against uh, these people like Molinists or like Calvinists. You're not going to want to fight these fights because, first of all, that's that's very nuanced. It's it's very, it, I would I would call it a very um, intelligent type of discussion, but it's it's really not. A lot of it's bait and switching. A lot of it's. Uh, Flashing uh, something flashy in your left hand while your right hand over here is doing something else. A lot of of, of it is the non-central fallacy. But so you don't want to get involved in those debates. You want to switch over to the Bible, which is your bread and butter, which is very easy. It's very intuitive. Uh, you could just read the Bible. You could understand the Bible. You could argue the Bible. And here's the thing: if the Bible says something different than what they're claiming, you know, um, well, who's right? First of all, who's right? And second of all, you don't have to argue their nuanced, very technical uh, talking points if the Bible says something exactly opposite of what they're trying to argue. What they want is they want to uh, drag you down into these philosophical conversations about issues that are they're not even in the Bible, tangential to the Bible, and uh, draw you away from actual discussion of the Bible because they're more comfortable they're more comfortable uh, talking about this obscure philosophy, which brings us to point number three. Whenever possible, go outside the expertise of the enemy. 
remember their expertise is in this cerebral, uh, very, I, I'm going to use that word almost facetiously because it's not actually cerebral, this very uh, high and lofty sounding technical jargon. That's what they want to talk about. They don't want to talk about the Bible because the Bible is outside their expertise. They really care about their philosophy. They don't so much care about the Bible. The Bible is something to be stapled onto their philosophy after the fact and everything reread in light of their philosophy. So focusing any debate on the Bible and doing it publicly in front of uh, their friends, their family in a public place, it, it will make them look almost ridiculous. So go outside their expertise, bring them to the Bible and stay away out of stay away out of their philosophical discussions that they really care about, that they really want to talk about, because then they're going to do word loops and try to get you into their circular thinking and argue that their circular thinking actually actually uh, means anything. It doesn't. And so bring them outside their expertise and focus on our expertise. Our expertise is biblical criticism, literary criticism. You know how to read a book. You know how to read the Bible. It, it's pretty simple. Number four, make the enemy live up to its own book of rules. Now, I think I've done a pretty good job in detailing a lot of places within the Bible in which they're going to take a phrase applied to God one way, and then the exact same phrase applied to mankind, they take a completely different way. So if they were living up to their own rule book, they would take all these phrases equally. So they have to argue that all the references of the same statement to God means they're abstract otherworldly theology, but uh, when it's applied to man, then it means something uh, very different. And so they're, they're, they're playing their hand. Uh, they're, they're, you've called their bluff. They're showing you, you they got nothing. Their proof texts are not proof texts. Their proof texts are talking points. And so, for example, God knows all things. And when they point to First uh, John uh, 3, you point them to First John 2 and says, man knows all things, same phrase. And they won't know what to do with that. Uh, it says King David knows all things. It says that the uh, you knew all things perfectly from the start. Th these are phrases within the Bible applied to man. In Ecclesiastes, I've seen all things under the sun. Just normal phrases applied to man. Uh, even, even when you're talking about uh, other things like the word elect or the, or, or the word foreknown or predestined, other uses of, of that. If they're not being consistent in how they're interpreting these words, the word dead, they say, oh, dead means dead. Well, not in all these other passages that we were pulling up here. You, you don't think that means dead. And uh, they'll have to concede that. So make them live up to their own rule books. <laughs> they say, oh, you, you can't save yourself. And the Bible says, uh, save yourselves. It says, you can't save other people. And Paul says, uh, that, or it's a Peter says, you, you'll save many souls from hell. You know, uh, it's it's just their double standards. Make them live up to their own standards of interpretation. Point out their hypocrisy. Five, ridicule is a man's most potent weapon. There is no defense. It's almost impossible to counterattack ridicule. It also infuriates the opposition who then react to your advantage. So one of the good things about uh, using ridicule against Calvinists is their already lofty status of themselves. They think, they think, oh, they're the, the intelligent uh, parties. They're, they're the ones who are, are sophisticated. They're, they're the ones who are the real thinkers. They're the real biblical people, and everyone else is not. So ridicule really pulls them off their high horse. This is 
this is a, a very, very much a weak point of theirs that that you could hit on. Uh, this is a wound of theirs that you could put your thumb in and twist it. It's going to hurt them really bad. It's going to hurt their self-esteem. It's going to hurt their pride. And that they very much care about their pride. They very much care about their public perception. And so ridicule is incredibly effective against Calvinists. That They can't take ridicule and they, they lash out as a response. And so ridicule is man's most potent weapon. There is no defense. So the, again, I, I didn't write these rules. I do think that there are defenses to ridicule. And uh, I'll go over one that I kind of pulled up that I, I kind of uh, uh, was thinking about throughout my life. I think about uh, potential potential defenses from from external attacks attacks. And one one example is this guy named iDubs on the internet. And the idea is here. This is a video called Content Cop: How Confidence Makes You Untouchable. And he talks about ways in which iDubs can criticize other people for the same things he's doing, yet iDubs remains unscathed. And that's true for most of, uh, I think, iDubs's life and career. But he kind of fell short within the last like year or so when it came out his like girlfriend was doing OnlyFans. And that, that might have been his undoing. I'm, I, don't, I don't follow this guy, so I don't know his current status in the world. But he makes some good points in this video, not iDubs, but this uh, other guy called Phil Mental, about how someone can uh, skate over criticisms. One is confidence. If you're confident in yourself uh, and you just br brush off the criticism, the criticism is not effective. Let's, let's talk about a different way. It's pure, good-hearted, sane person who wasn't actually that pure. So a content cop was like an iDub series in which he would uh, actually pull people out and criticize those people for things. And this this section of the video is talking about him criticizing someone named Tana who made herself as some sort of saint. And he was a, able to pull out times where she wasn't so saintly and show her hypocrisy. But on the other hand, the accusations thrown at her could be seen to have one core flaw, a flaw of who's the one doing the accusing. In fact, in this instance, we might actually have a classic case of the top calling the kettle black. Before we move any further, let me make one thing clear. I don't know Ian Carter personally, I know nothing about him, so all I can do here is talk about the character he publicly plays, why that's him. Not him, him. That said, let me make another thing clear. Idubs is not a good person. He's very much a bad one. So let's let's uh, scroll backwards, and we're going to see him Idubs dressed in some sort of green outfit. Oh, here's here's him uh, pretending to be wheelchair bound. So how are you going to character assassinate someone who runs around in a green suit and uh, plays around on wheelchairs and uh, wrestles people on the beach? Yeah, it's it's going to be. You're going to have a very hard time like criticizing and calling him out for things because he's already in himself a ridiculous character. Rachel says, hey, hey, Rachel. So iDubs has some sort of shield around him from criticism just because his persona to the outside world is already a little bit ridiculous. So that's one thing about open theist. We should not be taking ourselves so seriously. Uh, we got to have levity in life, enjoy life love life and uh, with that sort of nonchalant attitude towards everything in general we're going to be harder to criticize because they're like it, someone's going to criticize me i literally have a video of myself 
how to dress like Chris Fisher. Let's see if I can't pull that up real quick. Uh, with a mop on my head. <laughs> so you're going to criticize a guy who's wearing a mop on his head? I don't know about that. I don't think that's going to work too well. That's a uh, how to dress like Chris Fisher. I'll just put that in there. Maybe it'll come up. I don't know. Uh, I don't think that uh, these search engines work very well. But it's on YouTube where I wear a mop on my head. And uh, someone in response to my video about James White just making fun of the way he dresses, someone's like, you should do one of these on yourself. Let's take a look. Uh, how to dress like Chris Fisher. Yeah, it's not coming up, but uh, in, a, in a good world where search engines actually hold up what you're searching for, it would come up. But iDubs is not someone you could criticize. Not him. Because uh, he's, he's him. a silly guy. That, that was that green outfit. So you can put a shield around yourself from criticism if you don't take yourself and the world around you very seriously. I'm going to just let this play a little bit more. That's it. Bet you make no Idubs is not a good person. He's very much bad. Yeah, and so that's another point there. Uh, he never claimed to be a good person. I never claimed to be a good pe person. So people are like, you're not very nice. I'm like, okay, I I didn't claim to be nice. That wasn't wasn't like a thing that I does. That's not like a goal of mine. I don't know what what you're trying to get at. It's like, okay, I I guess. Well, I won't go into further detail on this because frankly, I think it'd be redundant. I hope it'd be redundant. And I hope everyone watching is intelligent enough to know why. But of course, if you are one of the little kids who honestly think it's totally fine to run around in real life or on the internet calling people effing anyway, efforts, okay. So, to everyone with at least half a brain, here we have two fat people. One fat person goes to the other and exposes her for being fat, even though he is guilty for being the very same thing. Result? He gets hated on, he gets celebrated like a hero. Probably seems to make sense, right? But in fact, it does. This because these two people have one major difference. Difference of how they publicly portray themselves. Yeah, so your public persona is very important. I find this is this is very true in real life as well. So if you you get a aura about yourself that you're carefree and you make ridiculous jokes and you're absurd from time to time, people let you get away with a lot more than you would if you just said things and you're just stoic all the time and, and too professional looking. So there, there is actual defenses against ridicule. James White does not have that defense. He, he's a ridiculous man pretending to be a scholar. And so pulling him off his high horse, pulling these Calvinists off their high horse, just ridiculing and making fun of them, uh, it just sends them into uh, <laughs> Greg Rickett said he, he actually, uh, this, is, this, is, this is what it does to him. Here's his comment. They, they read. Right, they read how to be like Christopher Fisher. Okay, that's probably that will probably pull that up. But uh, yeah, right. Oh, I'm pulling myself up here. How to be like Christopher Fisher? If we can't pull that up, <laughs> oh man, that, that's 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 really funny, actually. So uh, uh, the the thumbnail is just me just making a ridiculous uh, face, <laughs> and then I start I off. <laughs> I gotta hit play on this. How my how to be like James White video is doing? Hopefully, it uh, 
overwhelming positive response full of love and adoration. Hopefully there's nothing vindictive or spiteful in there. Let's go read some of the comments. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh. Do one of these on yourself, loser. Are you jealous? Get out of your mama's basement. Do one of these on yourself. Oh. Hello and welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Oh, my system sound should be on. Right, have you not been hearing the, the system sound, Rachel? Oh, no. Let's see. Mute screen audio, unmute. There's an echo. Uh-oh. There's, there's all sorts of conflicting reports of whether or not we actually hear anything. There's an echo. Yeah, God is open. We're going to be doing a fashion tutorial. Can you hear on it? This open fist ideologue, Christopher Fisher, as seen here in this video, talking about games. Okay. Anyways, uh, did everyone hear the iDubs thing? Okay, in which they talked about how iDubs skates criticism from being ridiculous and uh, never claiming to be a bad person. And a little bit high. I wonder why there's an echo. I wonder what's going on there. But yeah, me with a mop on my head. Uh, I don't think your criticisms and ridicule of me are, are going to work. And so number five is ridicule is man's most potent weapon. There's no defense. There, there is somewhat of a defense. It's almost impossible to counterattack ridicule. Also, it infuriates the opposition at, who then react to your advantage. And it's, it's lovely when we get the reactions. And so that actually leads into number six. A good tactic is one your people enjoy. Uh, ridiculing and sending these Calvinists into infuriating rants is fantastic, and I love it. And so I think a lot of people love seeing these types of reactions. And so a good tactic is one your people enjoy. Find something that they love. If, if ridiculing Calvinists and sending them in these little panics is, is great for you, uh, it's it's good for the open theist movement in general. It, it shows them to be mentally not the most stable individuals. It pulls it actually degrades their their claims of being scholarly and uh, sophisticated if they're reacting in childish manners to everything. Like uh, James White, James White, a debate against William Lane Craig. Oh, that was that was glorious. He didn't know how to act. He didn't know how to respond. The laughter of William Lane Craig against James White. James White's getting laughed at by by maybe maybe one of the most prominent philosophers of the modern day. He's getting laughed at, and his face is just it's just priceless. Oh, I I was loving life. It was so funny. So a tactic that drags on too long becomes a drag. We can't be doing the same thing over and over again because. It gets boring and dull. You need to shake things up. So if you're doing a lot of memes, you know, memes are good, but uh, doing them too often, saturating the market, no one really cares after a while. Uh, good tactic. Tactics need to change. Approaches need to change. Things can't be the same talking points forever. There, there's got to be new content coming along that keeps people interested and motivated. If it's, it's it's the same thing too long, people lose interest. They'll drift away. They, they won't care about what's going on. All right, so keep the pressure on. This is great as well. Um, so let go Calvinists have they seem to be in what I can I can see 
they they seem to be taking open theism as a very real threat to their hegemony, a re very real threat to uh, the Christian landscape, such that they've been addressing open theism more and more, attacking it personally in their videos. They're aware of it. And so I think what also puts the pressure on is open theists in comments arguing with their followers, and their followers just don't know how to respond. Remember, all the way back up to uh, number three, whenever possible, go outside the expertise of the enemy. If all their talking points are against standard Arminianism, then they encounter open theists. They don't know how to respond. And they react, and they react in, in pretty hilarious ways. They're, they're struck dumb in a way, which uh, my my clearest example of that from my memory, it, it was uh, during an abortion protest. Okay, so all, all these uh, Planned Parenthood shills, they were out on the corner of my campus with all their signs in a row about honking to support abortion. And so I took some big pictures of aborted babies and I went down there and I stood right in the middle of them just holding up these signs and the girl next to me, and she, this is outside her, her realm of experience. She doesn't, she didn't know how to act and how to respond. And and the whole planner of the whole organization, I'm just out there standing with them, out there uh, among their people. They do it, it. It's perfectly legal for me to do. And she's like, I don't know what to do. Do I just stand here? And her director of person's like, Yeah, just keep standing there. They just they didn't know how to respond to what I was doing because it was outside their realm of experience. And so these open theists that are in these comment sections just pulling up these uh, probing questions or probing comments that just tear down Calvinists in ways that the Calvinists did not expect, that's, that's putting the pressure on in, in multiple directions. So a threat is usually more terrifying than the thing itself. So <laughs> one thing to do in order to terrify or put people uh, in some sort of defensive mode is to show them what's possible. So do you think Theodore Zacharias or whoever the guy's name is, I think that's his name, do you think he would have done his big yelling speech at his debate if he knew that I was going to put up a two-hour video of him nodding that will be on the internet likely forever? He probably wouldn't. And the fact that that video now does exist probably gives people like him pause in, in how they they conduct themselves. Uh, Pine Pine Creek's video of Tyler Vela with the me, me, me's is forever on the internet, um, forever acting as a deterrent towards Calvinists so that they need to start watching what they say. You know, a threat of something is more terrifying than the thing itself. You know, it, it's probably okay. Uh, Tyler Vela probably doesn't think about it every day that that video is out there. But probably the threat of a new video is going to make him think twice before saying the same type of things in some sort of engagement. So a major premise for tactics is that the development of operations that will maintain a constant pressure upon the opposition. So a constant pressure campaign, something where they're confronted maybe daily or, or weekly. Uh, maybe there's people going into their, their chat rooms and, and posting questions, uh, something that they're confronted time and time again so they can't let open theism slip into the distance. And it's important to keep this campaign up because the Calvinists are very vindictive and trying to root out open theism. And so the more it's brought to the forefront, the more that they have to confront it, the more energy they have to expend to counter open theism, 
the more legitimacy open theism gets. It's one of those things that uh, you you punch up, you you don't punch down because if you're punching down, you're giving exposure to people below your status. But if you're punching up and they punch down, then they've given you that exposure. They've given you that status. They, they've given you uh, David Pullman, for example. Uh, we we're going to talk about him with number eleven, but uh, there's an interview with him in which he says. You know, all these these James White attacks on me, and he's not an open theist, but he was attacked by James White and became like somewhat a, a micro-celebrity overnight because of these personal attacks done by James White against him. So we're going to look at 11. If you push a negative hard and deep enough, it'll break through to its counterside. This is based on the principle that every positive has its negative. So the idea of this point, this this rule for radical is, is that that it's something your opposition does negatively against you can be turned into a positive. So if James White is making fun of some some poor kid who works at Dillard's, uh, so the story is that uh, James Paulman, he wrote a comment criticizing some stupid philosopher that the Calvinists love that I've never heard of before and uh, saying that he's overrated. Uh, yeah, the guy I've never heard about before is overrated probably. And so then there's all this pushback. So the Calvinists blew up this post. James White found this post, and he went to uh, he went to David Pullman's uh, profile on Facebook, and he copied and pasted everything that David Pullman. You know, like when you're a young kid, here here's how you how you do the internet. You're like, what are the things about me that describes me? It's like, oh yeah. I'll make a big list, uh, open theist, uh, dispensationalist, uh, young earth creationist. And I'm just going to put this huge list in my profile. So then everyone gets a snapshot of my deeply held beliefs right when they look like young kids will do this. Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Um, it's not as it's not as uh, interesting as as you would think. Maybe maybe just, you know, your name or something like that in your profile. You don't have to describe your entire life's mission in your profile. But that's what David Paulman did. All, all his deeply held beliefs. And then at, at the bottom of the screenshot, the clip that James White had was, this guy works at Dillard's. And so James White is criticizing, his, his, his implicit criticism is, you shouldn't listen to what a kid says if that kid works at Dillard's, which is taken as a low blow, especially from someone with a position of power such as James White. And so this blew up all over the place. I, so I got the interview pulled up, and hopefully the audio works. Let's uh, go over here, and here's a David Pullman interview about the subject in which he, he talks about what happened and the consequences. Uh, as far as being original, um, this I was actually referring to a lot of the arguments from the use, particularly the problem of induction. This is not his argument, right? This was came from Hume. Uh, he borrowed a lot from Bertrand Russell on this. Uh, he, if I'm not mistaken, even Van Hill might have yeah, does this sound like uh, just your normal Dillard's associate who hasn't read anything? This David Paulman guy, I'm friends with him on Facebook, and he like every week posts like a huge stack of books that he's reading. And so one thing about the university system and credentialism is if, if you're just reading normal books by yourself and absorbing that information, you're going to be a lot smarter and well-read at people with degrees. The degrees don't mean as much as the knowledge. And people often confuse degrees with competency, which is not at all the case. The degree just represents 
the amount of time and money you've sent to a university for a slip of paper. And so I'd put this kid, David Paulman, up against uh, any any PhD for just sheer knowledge. And this kid's like in his 20s. So uh, high praise of him. I've had my disagreements with him in the past, but he's a knowledgeable guy who reads a lot of books. And it's it's not like you can't look down on him because he doesn't have some sort of piece of paper. Dale, or he's developing the argument. This really shouldn't be that controversial. So uh, uh, Craig writes that not very good audio. So I'll just go share that tab real quick. And we'll, we'll see if that fixes the thing up. So I am going to share. But David Paulman, uh, I don't know the guy's name, like Boosom or something like that is who they're talking about. Stop screen. Okay, I got to stop screen and then reshare. <laughs> James White attacks uh, David Paulman. So that, we'll see if this clears up the audio. Um, but it, it was just a point to make that a lot of the arguments that Greg Bonson put forward were not his own. He was parroting other people's arguments. And that's not to say there's anything wrong with that, but it should be acknowledged. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So was there something that inspired you? Or like, were you like reading something or? Writing a writing some other posts or whatever, and you're like, mm, you know, this seems like a good thing to talk about. Like, was there anything that inspired you? I mean, obviously, yeah, it was generally motivated by um, the way that Greg Bonson is, was talked about. Yeah, Pixels of Light also writes Greg Bot Bonson. I, I hadn't ever heard of this guy, but apparently, apparently, he's a big deal in Calvinism. It might be one of those things. Uh, who was that conservative guy that everyone? Everyone uh, glorified back in like the 60s and whatever that uh, who turned out to be a nobody. And he wrote that scathing review of Rothbard when Rothbard died. Oh, saying, oh, Rothbard is going to uh, fade into nothingness. And then and then guess what? Guess who all who faded into nothingness is that guy. Uh, what is his name? I'll, I'll have to find it real quick. I'll let this play. Um, in the Calvinist community, I'd probably been interacting with some people the day before online who had, you know, <laughs> for the hundredth time told me, oh, you should read Greg Bonson, right? Because oh, he gosh. just, he answered all these objections to presuppositional uh -huh. apologetics, right? Uh, I don't think it was any one particular thing. It was just a lot of uh, seeing Bonson continually lauded as being this, this definitive great intellectual. Uh, I think this, like I saw one book, it was titled Greg Bonson, the man that atheists feared most, you know, and he was just <laughs> held up as like oh my gosh. the smartest man to have ever lived. And I'm just like, I'm sure he was smart. You know, I, I don't question that, but there's just, he, I don't think his uh, the the level of work he does is of the quality that it could survive like the sort of rigorous analysis that contemporary philosophers would subject. Yeah, so he, he's saying that uh, uh, this guy Greg Banton would not. He doesn't hold up. He's he's not going to fare well. So the guy I was thinking about was William F. Buckley. Uh, he, he's he's garbage. And uh, he wrote that scathing obituary of what Rothbard, like let him let him uh, rot or weigh or whatever, something like that. William F. Buckley put out articles for abortion and stuff like that. And he's supposed to be this conservative icon, and now he's faded into nothingness. No one knows his name anymore. William F. Buckley. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope he doesn't rest in peace. But uh, Dave, Dave Paulman's right that th these people are ideologues that have their time and place and will fade into nothingness. And so he's he's not wrong. He's not calling the guy stupid, but it's it's not genius level. He, he's a rhetorician, as David Paulman points out. A lot of these Calvinist heroes, 
talk a good talk game. They're, they're, they're not intellectual thinkers. And James White is specifically called out in, in the David Pullman post. James White is not a rigorous thinker. He's just a rhetorician. And I think it's notable. He did not publish any books, you know, with um, like Oxford University Press, Cambridge University Press, Rutledge. Like these are the publishers that uh, the highest level philosophers of our day. Yeah. So David Pullman goes to Trinity Seminary, which is an unaccredited college and works with people like uh, I think Leighton Flowers is associated with in some way. Braxton Hunter. And uh, yeah, so that that's who he's he's dealing with. <laughs> uh, so he's he's not unschooled per se, but it, he's he's very much self-taught by and large, and self-taught to a high degree. He knows what he's talking about. He, he's not a dumb person. They publish with Bonson didn't get published with them. He didn't even get his work published in like academic journals and stuff. Uh, it's not discussed by contemporary philosophers. Bonson is not cited by contemporary philosophers. Uh, and, you know, those are sort of the marks of somebody who is uh, probably one of the more brilliant thinkers of our day, right? Like uh, Alvin Planting, I disagree with him on plenty of things, but he's cited everywhere. Like in almost every philosophy book I read, I can almost guarantee you Alvin Planting is going to be in there. Uh, he's somebody who has really made a difference in the face of contemporary philosophy. So most philosophers don't even know who Greg Bonson is. And no, it uh, does. he's not in and no, of it does. itself to say that he's not brilliant. I think his work makes that case. But it is certainly something that anyone who wants to say that he was so brilliant, they've definitely got to explain that how come almost nobody in academia knows who this guy is. Wow, that's like super crazy. Uh, so you make this post. Eli Ayala responds. He's a, he's a YouTuber. You know, he's got thousands of followers. Not a ton, not a huge guy, but, he, you know, people know him in the community. And he says, oh, Bonson, you know, he probably, uh, he said he talks about Bonson and like, oh, David's obviously wrong. You know, Bonson had all this education and he had all these rewards. And, you know, he knew everything. Give your thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, well, first of all, I don't think that that was actually, I don't think Eli wrote that. So I yeah, think right. uh, Paul Minata actually wrote that, who, um, well, if you know anything about Paul, he's he's not a fan of mine. But um, yes, I think he actually wrote that post in defense of Greg Bonson, which to my mind, it looked like the two main points were that Bonson had a lot of degrees and David Paulman is not to be taken seriously. So those, yeah, those seemed like the two main points there, which, you know, I mean, it's fine. I mean, I agree with the first one. I agree that Bonson did have points. I don't think it follows from that, that he was either brilliant, original, or rigorous. Um, I don't think that follows from the fact that he had degrees. Um, and, you know, whether somebody thinks I should be taken seriously or not, that's, you know, entirely up to them. I'm certainly, I'm certainly not an academic. Uh, but I think Eli, I, if I if I heard correctly, uh, he actually asked Eli or somebody asked Eli to share that post. For one reason, I have Paul Minata blocked just because, again, I don't I don't particularly like the guy. I find him to be a little bit. Um, That's another thing about Facebook. My life is a lot better since I've blocked every single Calvinist who uses a laugh react instead of actually responding with arguments. My, my time on, on Facebook is, has been a lot nicer. You just go around. You can interact with people. You're, you're not getting into these flame wars with people who aren't interested in conversation. It's it's a really good uh, discriminator against Calvinists who have no integrity, no intellectual integrity. Just putting them on block and never seeing anything they say ever again. It makes life wonderful. I highly suggest it. 
not to be insulting, I find it would be a little bit toxic and just sort of not the sort of person I like to interact with. Uh, so that's why I have him blocked. But anyway, so obviously the, the upshot of that is I wasn't going to see that post. And I think he wanted me to be see it. So um, I think he asked Eli to share it. And I'm not completely sure about that, but that's, that's how <laughs> I've understood it. Uh, and so, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Eli shared the post uh, and he since deleted it, too. And I'm not I'm not sure if you want me to share this. But anyway, he apologized to me for the sort of storm it uh, really? caused and such. He did. Yes. Wow. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, I appreciated that. Uh, Eli did. Uh, I certainly didn't ask or expect him to you know, delete the post. Uh, so Paul or Eli deleted it? Uh, Eli did. Really? That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I was looking for it, and I couldn't find it, so I was a little confused by that. But that's super yeah. cool. But, I mean, at the same time, like, this is giving you a lot of a lot of press coverage. So, I mean, <laughs> I doubt you are that complaining that much. <laughs> no, I wasn't upset about it. I mean, it's interesting. A lot of people since to me have been like, oh, well, you brought this on yourself and such. And, like, I was like, I, I haven't really complained about this. Um, I haven't, like, been upset or anything. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's kind of been, I've, I've been mildly amused and entertained by um, kind of how the situation just ballooned into what it did. And, and that is the correct response. David Pullman, out of this interaction, got a lot of good press. He got a lot of, they were able to take this bad situation. Remember back to our rules for radicals, you take the bad situations and you press it through to the good conclusions. And that's exactly what happened here. Because who mobilizes? All of Trinity College mobilizes around David Pullman, pointing out uh, how brilliant David Pullman is and uh, how base and depraved James White is. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll talk a little bit about it. What? Yeah, totally. Yeah, makes sense. All right. Yeah. So, so, you know, Eli makes his posts and he's, you know, he's telling all this about David and he's saying, oh, Greg Bonson's actually a pretty cool guy. And then and then James White responds. He says, I'm sorry, but who is David Pullman? This sort of says it all. You know, basically, you know, he just like searches up David's name and he's just like, oh, this is him. And then, of course, David's like the only guy on the internet who's got like half of his beliefs right here. But uh, <laughs> uh, then that's every every guy in their twenties uh, has a big list of their 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 beliefs on whatever uh, profile that they have. I don't know. Back in the day, it was like MySpace or whatever. You just like these are my my key features, my beliefs. Don't do that, guys. You're just don't do that. It's it's uh, very pretentious, and uh, it doesn't look or portray yourself as as you would you would think right and at the very bottom he coincidentally just leaves it in sales associate at dillard's and then it's it wasn't coincidental that james white left that in james white had a clarifying post out that uh that he it was purposeful because it was relevant his current occupation david Palmer's current occupation was relevant to this discussion which is really funny because i told david Palmer on one of my comments that uh, all you need to do is take Take a lesson from James White, White, James White in uh, theological grifting, and then he won't have to work at Dillard's anymore. If you could just grift people to give you money, it's like, is he is he really saying David doesn't have an opinion because he works in retail? Yes, that's what he yeah, said. Yeah, uh, I think it was Jonathan Pritchett who first kind of started criticizing um, uh, James White on that front, right? He uh, the screenshot got shared, uh, and yeah, Jonathan Pritchett posted it and basically called James White out and said he didn't have any problem. Of course, he said, you know, basically if I uh, I won't use the exact words that Jonathan used, but basically if I post um, 
inflammatory stuff on my page. People are free to post inflammatory stuff in response. But um, he thought it was basically taking a low blow uh, or being underhanded basically to try to discredit me on the basis of where I work. No, I don't I don't think that Pritchett cares personally about it as much as he does about the character of James White. And this is a chance to display for the world and press home the point, James White's bad character. I think this is why Pritchett and others, I don't know if Pritchett was taking the, the lead on this, but they're, they're pressing home the point about how low and kind of despicable this is. It, it's a chance to rally the base, to rally around a common cause, rally around this poor victim. And, you know, he's not a poor victim. He's, he's getting the press out of this. He's getting... He's, he talks about all his friend requests and stuff he, he got from this. He's, he's not not a real victim, but it is a chance to uh, rally the base around a common cause to show, to call people out who are bad actors. And James White is a bad actor. So he does a lot of bad actor things a lot of times. Uh, he criticized James White. In my video, in which I defend James White on one issue, James White pulls that up, and then he attacks me. It's like, okay, all right, James White. Now, initially, I thought, you know, maybe, you know, that, that wasn't necessarily intentional, right? Sam writes, how did James White not expect to get blowback for this? Because uh, he's he's arrogant, he's smug, he's surrounded by sycophants who, who feed into his, his self-delusions of invulnerability. He gets to say and treat everyone how he wants, and no one could treat him the same way. This, this is the, the typical Calvinist mindset. I'm reminded of Matt Slick and the on the Arthur Hagland in their debate, in which Arthur Hagland points out, you're, you're a bully. This is what you do. You just do this, this victim, oh, woe is me. You need to treat me so well. And you treat everyone else terribly. There's there's no consistency. You got to point out these these bad tactics when they present themselves. I mean, he was cropped the screenshot <laughs> down. He didn't he didn't necessarily maybe he didn't That's mean funny. to include the job or didn't have any implications. No, no. There, right. I mean, I don't have a problem. He, he meant to. James White meant to. He put out a comment saying, "Yeah, it's relevant." Problem with it. I mean, I, I do work for Dillard's. You know, I have that on my bio. It's it, it's not like a fact that I'm ashamed of. So I wasn't like <laughs> upset by this. Uh, but anyway, so Chris Day uh, privately reached out to um, James White and uh, basically gave him the benefit of the doubt that he did not mean to basically demean me for working. In All right, hold on. I'll, I'll read from that. All right. So, well, you know, he said, he said a lot of stuff, but basically uh, something worth pointing out. He says I, to James White in a personal message, he says, I'd like to encourage you to address the fact that your screenshot from his profile. All right, we're gonna we're gonna stop there on that point because you kind of get the idea. So there's this a negative attack on someone in the public sphere, and a negative can be turned into a positive if you just push it through. You drive it home, you emphasize it, you bring it to light, and uh, you press on it. And something which is like a negative, this is a Calvinist criticizing someone, demeaning someone, can be turned and refocused into a positive event for movement. Now, this is not part of the open theist movement, but it's the part of the anti-Calvinist movement. These people, they're, they're not good people. <laughs> and so it, I, we, we need to ally with who we can. What is this? It's showing the wrong screen here. Add to stream, remove that. Okay, maybe, maybe it is right. I got to remove that. Stop screen. There we go. 
So uh, back to our rules for radicals. Push a negative until it's a positive. I'm going to pull back up the rules. Next rule. So the price of a successful attack is a constructive alternative. And so the idea here is that always have an alternative ready when somebody says they agree with you. You, you point out all the problems with believing in Platonistic systems, and they say, okay, I agree that it's problematic that Augustine said he couldn't believe the Bible unless he read it in light of Platonism. Yeah, that, that is a problem. What's the alternative? Um, open theists have an alternative. How about Semitic religion? How about Semitic ideas of the divine rather than Platonistic ideas, rather than Platonistic ideas of the form, uh, of, the, uh, of the one, of the realm of the soul? that there are different hypostases of existence. How about instead a Semitic world in which things are more fluid, things don't are, aren't uh, defined in these these uh, with these metaphysical rules that must be true no matter what. The greatest being theology. That's not the Semitic mind. So in case someone agrees with you, have an alternative for them to switch to uh, in case that's what they're looking for. Because if you're, are you posing problems without solutions, then they could call you out and focus uh, the negative on you. How about number 13? Pick the target, freeze it, personalize it, and polarize it. Again, James White is a very good pick because he's a very caustic, ill-intentioned, mean person, spiteful person. Does anyone does anyone actually want to sit down with James White and have a beer? I don't, I, I don't want to do that. That sounds that sounds awful. He doesn't. He doesn't sound like a good person. He doesn't sound fun. He's he don't, he's not happy in his life. He he just seems like a very miserable person, like in a in a deep down level. I I people I would have beers with. I would have beers with uh, Pastor Anderson. That would actually be pretty funny. He probably thinks I'm a heretic, and but that that would actually be fun. Um, but uh, he James White doesn't strike me as someone who. You know, is is a good person deep down or inside? And there's there's a lot of personal reports of interactions with this guy, and he's just not not a nice guy. He's just he just lives life. He's full of himself, and he's just very caustic individual. So he, he's a very good target. So pick a target, freeze it, personalize it, and polarize it. Make Calvinists come out against James White, maybe with this David Paul bid thing. Press them on this. Oh, you think it's okay for? For James White to do this to this this poor kid who's in his twenties who who just reads theology all day every day and uh, probably doesn't have a girlfriend. I don't know. Maybe he does have a girlfriend, but but maybe he's he's given up a life of having a girlfriend to read theology. And James White is attacking him because he's working at Dillard's. This poor kid is is the target. Is, are you okay with that, Calvinist? Polarize it. Either Jesus does it. He says either you're with me or you're against me. He's polarizing everyone. He's not letting people take the middle ground. And that's what this rule for radicals is. Make people pick a side. Force them into it. And uh, that's, that's part of the ways to drive home the social change. All right. So <laughs> let's go look at uh, our, our rules for radicals again and kind of read through them. So we went through all 13. Number one, power is not only what you have, but what your enemy thinks you have. Calvinists use this all the time, claiming that they're the best biblical scholarship, that they don't actually have that. And we shouldn't be 
let in the false security that they do have. I, I wouldn't encourage people lying about things, but uh, you know, it's a strategy. Two, never go outside the expertise of your people. Open theism. We could easily just appeal to normal, competent literacy when dealing with the Bible. We don't need to talk about their crazy semantic categories. Oh, oh, this this has modalistic properties where it could be either this mode or this mode or this state or no, it's, is it in the Bible or is it not? You know, we we could read. And uh, we're familiar with how literature works, and we could we just open the Bible and read it and see if any people in the Bible held that theology or not. It's just not there. Whenever possible, go outside the expertise of the enemy. <laughs> they don't like reading. They don't like talking about stories. They don't like talking about alternative ways of reading similar phrases. They don't like talking about grammatical issues. It's, it's outside their expertise. Make them live up to their own book of rules. If they're claiming certain things, test to see if that's true with, with other areas of their life. Show them to be hypocrites. They say, God knows all things. Well, man knows all things, so uh, deal with that. And you're going to just expose yourself as a hypocrite who doesn't actually have any proof text. You, you got nothing. Ridicule these individuals. And it works especially well on Calvinists because that is their, that's where they're self-conscious. That, that, that's where... That's their deep, I, th I think it's their deep-seated fear is that they're exposed as charlatans or frauds or, or anti-intellectual or rejecting the Bible. That is their fears. And so that type of ridicule is extremely effective on the Calvinist camp. And a good tactic is one your people enjoy. If, if you're not getting enjoyment out of it, probably other people are as well. Just uh, have a good time. That's a good. That's a good rule for life. Just have a good time. It's we don't have to be super serious all the time. A uh, tactic that drags on becomes a drag. We don't want to bore people and just keep putting out the same things over and over again. Keep the pressure on. Uh, just keep at it. Bring it to the limelight. Make them think about it. To live rent free in their minds. You know, <laughs> some people. I, I think there's a lady on the God is Open page. Who, who's, who brought up my name to a group of Calvinists and they're like, oh, we hate that guy. It's like, I, I guess I'm semi-famous in random Calvinist circles of normal people that people engage at church. Random, I guess that's, that's good, I guess. A threat is usually more terrifying than the thing itself. Make people pay for the things they do and that will put fear into others about repeating that. A major premise for tactics is the development of operations that will maintain consistent pressure. We kind of talked about that already. If you push that negative hard enough, you could turn that into a positive. Take their negative attacks. They're useful. Um, they could be turned fun. You know, people are having a lot of fun with this David Palman thing. It's fun. A price of successful attack is a constructive alternative. Make sure you have things that people can turn to rather than what you're criticizing. You're criticizing them for have, having Platonism. They ask you what the alternative is. Talk about Semite religion. How about Semite religion? How about you ditch this Aryan, Aryan religion that, that comes from the Greeks and you turn to Semite religion, which came from the ancient Semites? How about, the, how about that? Those, that is the alternative. Pick a target, freeze it, personalize it, and polarize it. Especially against individuals, this will create uh, a, a little bit of fear. What a lot of these social movements do is they pick one individual to go after. Like, let's say Joe Rogan, they want this guy 
uh, gone. They don't care about anything else. So they're just going to grab one guy. They don't care if other people have done similar things. They're just going to put all their effort on focusing on hurting this one person. And that creates a general sense of fear among other individuals. That, that's the idea. <laughs> What's this? At, at Calvinist Therapy, they all have a Chris Fisher doll for the client to beat up and work out their frustrations. <laughs> that would be pretty fantastic. I know James White does his little boxing thing with uh, that uh, brown guy. I don't know that guy's uh, first name. A theologian. <laughs> so Drew's here. Uh, just in time for us to close, Drew pops in. So uh, again, the rules for radicals, how to create social movements, how to gain ground ground with a social. This Samuel Linsky guy, I hate this guy so much more than anything. You have no idea, but he does know how to facilitate social change. He, he does have some expertise in changing a culture, changing ideas, getting things done, getting some movement within social movements. And what's the open theistic goal? I think the open theistic goal is just mainstream acceptance as an alternative to Arminianism and Calvinism, not to be called heretics everywhere we go. That's this is the goal. And so if we could use strategies like this to, to actually materialize this goal, to get us part of the dialogue, to, to get these these critics to stop attacking us because they understand uh, the blowback that's going to happen as a result. You know, this could really work to normalize open theism. <laughs> so everyone have fun with everything basically is the rule of the game. But uh, anyways, we'll probably end there uh, as Drew McLeod, he, he said hello. Now he could just post goodbye and then we'll all, all leave here. But it's good. Questions or comments, put that down below or uh, start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening.